Welcome to Episode 7 of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today we're going to be talking with Rick Sloan, the filmmaker behind such movies as Blood Theater, Vice Academy, and of course Hobgoblins. And I'm really looking forward to this episode because, as you'll see, the insights Rick has into filmmaking are really, really valuable. And I really enjoy the time he took to share his own perspective and... It was just a pure pleasure to talk to. I'll get into that in just a minute, but first, please pay attention at the end of the episode when I'm going to have an announcement on ways you can help support the podcast, and I promise these are ways that will not cost you a dime and will not take you more than five minutes, but you would really help me out a lot. So, if you're enjoying Hungry Tarlobite, please pay attention at the end of the episode. And now, here we go. Hi there, and we're talking with Rick Sloan, director of such classics as Hobgoblins. How are you doing today? I am good. Thank you for having me. Oh, glad to do it. Glad to do it. I have been wanting to get you on for quite some time now because um, I'm a huge fan of independent cinema and offbeat cinema. I mean, I like the classics too, but I love someone who really gets into just making what I, I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, I've heard people call it grindhouse cinema, genre cinema, whatever you care for. So thanks for being here. Okay, and for those of you listening to the interview... I made the decision to do it over the telephone. I was too lazy to set up the camera and clean one of my rooms to do a like on-camera interview, so just listen for once. Well, that's quite all right. If people are seeing the, <laughs> the background here, I've got my little plush BB-8 here and my Star Trek prints on the wall, so it's not like you're, you're getting the, the great studio experience on my end either. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things I find most interesting about your work is that you have a tendency to write and create and produce and direct all of your movies, and it's rare to see that kind of ownership. How do you pull it off? Um, well, I intentionally never acted in my films because I didn't want to add that one. I know when I did Blood Theater, the only time I think I ever saw a director put five things up with their name at once, and Russ Mayer did it, um, either Charlie Chaplin or... Was it on Citizen Kane? There's at least one other film I remember seeing that written, directed, produced, edited, and photographed by. And I do remember in film school, everyone laughing when you have five credits at once. <laughs> so even though I did photograph and edit uh, my next couple films after Blood Theater, I decided never more than three on one card at the same time. Uh, I learned that one the hard way. But um, I don't know. It's just I always wrote my own projects and... I was only 21 when I did my first feature, so it wasn't like I had funding or I had to shop around to get production um, or any producing funds because no one was going to kick anything in. So it was kind of just a given. That was how I was making these films. Um, I mean, I had access to film school equipment. I gave them a fake 10-page script, and they were so busy laughing at me that I got <laughs> the entire feature film in the can before anyone figured it out. And... Even when I screened it, they were still laughing and saying, you really should cut it to 10 minutes long. Yeah, like their 10-minute films are going anywhere. And it always amazed me. No one picked up on anything that I got a distribution deal on that movie. And not one person ever came up to me and said, congratulations. Or, or no one ever applauded that I got a, a deal. Or everyone else would spend $10,000 on a short film. And I think one person got it picked up on Showtime, and they got $300, and they got like a standing ovation from the film class, and I'm thinking, <laughs> seriously? So I just had really different goals. Um, I had different inspiration. The movie that, that really, you know, was my role model that, you know, set up everything I, I tried to mimic, um, we had to watch 
really boring movies in film school. I remember it was let's see, Potemkin, um, 39 Steps. Um, oh, God, <laughs> the names are bothering me. But um, as a joke, the teacher showed the last week of class, um, 1976 uh, Roger Corman movie, Hollywood Boulevard, directed by uh, Joe Dante and Alan Arkish. And movie was shot on one week for like twenty five grand, and I didn't think you could shoot a feature film in a week for twenty five grand. I'd never heard of such a thing, and it was made one third of stock footage from other movies, and everybody hated Hollywood Boulevard and laughed at it. And I was in awe. I mean, it was like it was a watershed moment for me. I mean, just watching that one movie. I had originally wanted to be an animator. Within ninety minutes, I knew what I wanted to make, and I've tried to mimic that film over and over again. Wow, that is amazing, and. You know, the proof is in the pudding. If you make a movie and people like it, what does it matter what it costs or how long it took or what equipment you use? That's, uh, but again, I'm the kind of guy that just likes weird offbeat movies, so who listens to me? Well, what it cost was important because if it didn't cost almost nothing, it wouldn't have gotten made. So. Well, true, true. But, you know, the person sitting in the chair enjoying it, or that's, I mean, they're just having a good time. I mean, you and I share a love of filmmaking as a craft and the process of it, and I mean, the end result of it can be absurd or silly, but that, that doesn't take away from the dedication it took to make it. Can you can you give me some more specific experiences of what might have happened on the other side of the camera? God, there's no budget on any of these movies. Um, there's one review of Hobgoblins. Um, I know it got a bunch of thumbs up. I, I can't remember who wrote it, but I remember the guy was particularly really annoyed by the movie. Uh, he, he said you could tell they had a budget and they still managed to mess things up. And one thing that I always put a lot of detail into is trying to make my films look like real movies, which I always shot on 35 millimeter. Um, I always always got the speed lenses, which most people aren't familiar with. You need a lot of light to shoot on film. Mm -hmm. With a speed lens, instead of having to worry about shooting at 2.8, you could open the lens to 1.4. You had depth of field of maybe three or four inches. But... When you're watching Hobgoblins, we had, I think, one 1,000-watt light and then three 600-watt lights in a suitcase. That was the entire – everyone imagines like a whole lighting truck. That was one suitcase to light the whole movie. Um, oh, and 12-car batteries in this um, steamer trunk that you could power your lights for 90 wow. minutes. So you could pretty much uh, go anywhere you wanted and um, not have to use a generator or get a generator permit. Um and, I mean, you'll notice in Hobgums, they drive around the van that we used. That was our production van that had the, the camera dolly, which I think we only used two days nice. in the film. Um, our 12-car batteries, um, the camera package. But um, there was just no money, and there was no um, camera. We had, like, one or two camera assistants for loading the magazines, but there was no lighting department. So when you watch, like, Visitants and Hobgoblins, I basically placed every light for every shot in the movie. I mean, there was a crew of like three or four people, maybe. That is. I mean, it, the crew would rotate different days, so you'll mm-hmm. see more. You'll see like three or four extra names for each each credit, but that just means like three people work one or two days each for the whole movie. I that is so weird that I watched Hobgoblins last night in preparation for this, and that somebody would criticize it for quote obviously having a budget when at no point watching that movie did I think. Yeah, they were just rolling in production capital, ready to go here. That, that thought never crossed my mind. That's a, I was always surprised by that one. Cause, um, yeah, it, I thought the fact that we had no budget clearly showed. Yeah, no. I, and yet, I mean, had I not seen it on MST3K, had I actually just rented this movie 
and, which I very much likely would have done in those days, and I just rented and gone home, I still would have had a good time with it. And I wouldn't have had any pretense about what it was like. I would have just had fun. So, again... it Oddly, it did well when it first came out. I mean, I was actually surprised. It was my first successful movie. I was very much surprised by that, because I was... I was never actually proud of Hobgoblins. Um, I somewhat liked Blood Theater. I really liked The Visitants, which not many people have seen. Then mm-hmm. Hobgoblins, I never put on my director reel. <laughs> I went straight to Vice Academy, which was my biggest film. But um, yeah, Hobgoblins, I wasn't expecting it would be the film I'd become known for, but um, yeah, it, it happened. I think, now I confess I have not seen Vice Academy yet. That's probably next on my list. So um, maybe I could swing around and check in with you again after I see that. I, I like the idea of it, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but one thing I'll ask is, how did you develop the, your offbeat taste in film? How did you decide that these were the movies you wanted to work on? Is this just what you like watching? Pretty much. Um, I think it was also that same backlash I had because I just despised film school. Um and it's just every film school movie, I was always waiting for one that would break the pattern. I've yet to see it. It was the combination of really boring, really pretentious, extremely on that one, and generally just way too much money spent. I mean, the, the spending a year to make a 10-minute film and ten grand. I mean, I would be shaking my head. And I mean, oh, my favorite line, I would hear this so many times in film school. And film school is the only place you'll ever hear someone say this. We spent all day getting the shot, but it was worth it. Because in, in the real industry, you would be – if you went to like a production meeting trying to get a deal and you said that, you would be thrown out of an office. I mean big producers and big directors don't get to spend all – I mean that's an embarrassment, nothing you would brag about. And every time I would hear it, I would always look at the shot to see if it was an impressive shot. I couldn't tell the difference. I, I would look at it going, how did this take a day unless you're really incompetent? And I'm thinking – people were laughing at me, but – no one else could shoot more than two pages a day, and I was shooting 14 pages a day, so maybe that's how I got to make a feature, and they didn't. It's funny. I did not go to film school, per se. I went to you a school. didn't miss anything. <laughs> I went to a school with a very strong film program, and that's kind of where I hung out. So I ended up getting involved in a lot of productions by virtue of physically being there. And did you I, witness the same bad attitude of pretentiousness? Very much. I was, there was a situation where at the premiere of one of these uh, movies – the guy was there, the directed it, was sitting there in his best suit, which I'm sure cost all of $30. And he, he said to his friends, we're doing it. We're living the dream. And my friend went up to him and literally shook his hand and said, congratulations, your dream sucks. <laughs> because It was cold, but it was like, you made a bad movie. I'm sorry, you did. I know your heart and soul was in it, but somebody else did the exact same thing in the exact same amount of time it was fun to watch so let's look at that I mean I think I, I, I still carry so much animosity I, from, God someone invited me to a movie only a week ago um, and I had to sit through a, let me not say the name of the film or the festival um, but I had to sit through a bunch of these other films in my personal hell if, if there was one it's a student film festival where, you know, every time the movie ends, the filmmaker stands up and talks about it for the length of the movie. <laughs> and then another movie starts and there's no exit door and the, the thing never ends. That's what it was like because I, I was invited there and a person who they had to announce me in the audience. I couldn't sneak out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, my God, it was torture. <laughs> but oh. yeah, that was only a week ago. 
and hopefully they're not they're not listening. So. <laughs> well, it'll be a little bit till this comes out, so hopefully there'll be enough time when a week ago could have been any any festival. That's right. That you might have. Yeah, I go to these all the time. I'm so. sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's also always the the person who thinks that their very first movie is going to be what lands them that you know million dollar gig down the road, and every everybody else is a stepping stone on their way. Well, that was the, I remember when I screened my picture at film school. Um, <laughs> I mean, on one level, I really enjoyed the having to stamp in front of this audience of 300 film students, and I could feel the energy of 300 people who thought they were more entitled to be the one who should have made a film and got distribution, even though I did it. Um, and some of the questions, like, can I direct your next film for you? It's like, well, let's see. You're in the same classes that taught me nothing. And why? So you can spend more time on lunch. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And not, there was never this trying to learn how I did it or, you know, how I, why was I the only one who was able to get away with it? No, it was always about, like, we should be the ones. And somebody even posted it. It got taken down eventually. But on IMDb, someone even posted on my page, I should be making your movies. Next time you get funding, give it to me. It's like, yeah, right. Yeah, but um, you got the funding, not Well, that's not the point. I mean, it's not about how, just because you think you're entitled to be making the film. That's not how the, doesn't really how it works. And I mean, and personally, if you really want a favor from someone in the business, you don't really insult them first. So that's no, two things no. that someone needs to learn. Yeah, that is the gall of that is unspeakable. It made me laugh, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, I mean, how many choices do you make during making a film that just boil down to, hey, this would be fun? Because I look at some of these movies and I think, okay, you, you put a, a lot of skill into this, a lot of hard work, and yet there had to be a moment where you're saying, this would be just fun to do. <laughs> How much of that comes goes into it? God, I'm trying to remember the last time the word fun was, was on set. Um, I, the word fun wasn't a popular one. I mean, the closest thing that I would always think about is, because I hate renting props. Almost, mm -hmm. It's actually cheaper to buy the stuff and if you find it uh, and look around. Mm -hmm. So I, I would always try to have create props that I, would, I know I, I could keep later on because I'm a hoarder and I have almost every prop from every film I've made. <laughs> but in terms of being fun, um, they were just hard work. Like Blood Theater, um, I don't know why in my first movie, it didn't occur to me how much work it was going to be to light a 3,000-seat theater. And I just remember I, I may have thought it was fun really early on, but there were... I mean, that, that was the kickback from that movie, is I always remembered how much work it was lighting that damn place. They didn't even have fast film stock yet. So by my second and third movie, there was no more. I mean, I was down to the speed lenses, and I mean, just using the smaller lights, so I was never going to go through that again. But, um, yeah, Hobgoblin's the word fun never came up on set. Visitors, I think, I prop that was probably the last film where the word fun might have been on set. Cause, I mean, I had fun creating the 1950s environment on our lack of budget, but... Um, Hobgoblins, for whatever it looks like, it was really a hard film to make. Sure. I mean, the locations were difficult. Um, it was my first film with stunts in it, and those those cost a lot of money doing them. And I was, uh, we actually lit that nightclub on fire accidentally. Um, I can so see that it, happening. And yeah, we lit the guy on fire. The place had a really low ceiling. <laughs> we put it out quickly, but it was it was hard to say. It was a I don't I can't think of any day on Hobgoblins that was fun. It was just a really difficult film to make. It might have been a poor choice of words on my part, but I have a, a really good example. It's the scene okay. where the hobgoblins get on the golf cart and take it for a joyride, and you see them on there. <laughs> and it might not be obvious the first time you're watching it, but there's two of them in the front that are sitting there holding hands. 
which is just that little touch that takes the scene from being cute to over the top wacky. And yeah. I just who was the person who decided no no let's have them hold hands <laughs> that 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 those kind of decisions for me I, I just think always... we only had four puppets and I was trying to make it look like there were six or eight of them <laughs> so I think we just kept reposing them I think it might have been the two in the back seat because there's one one's holding a walkie talkie there's one on the gas pedal one on the steering wheel I think the two in the back might have been holding hands it's the only shot we get of two but I, I remember that was a tricky scene because it was. There was no way to hide someone operating the damn golf cart. We had to throw a heavy sandbag on the gas pedal, and that thing took off. And, I mean, I, it was probably the closest to injury that happened on that film because the thing ran the camera down. Um, and I remember chasing after it and stopping it before it ran into traffic. <laughs> that, that was a really difficult scene. I mean, it looked stupid as hell. I think we were in a hurry because the sun was coming up. But, um yeah, I mean, I don't remember how they went up holding hands in that one shot. It was probably for like 10 seconds of footage, but um, probably just any... Ver- I was trying to make each one look like there was a couple extras, which never fooled anybody, but... <laughs> yeah. It helps when they all look the same anyway, so hey, it could be six, it could be eight. And, and personally, I was actually wondering if they were breeding during the movie, too. I mean, that hey, you don't know what they are. They could have just started making more. I know, we only had two in that one shot. We had to shove them in that stupid... <laughs> um, the guy sent to the... One of the few things we actually got from the prop house, the guy... Couldn't, I mean, I told him, like, a 50 spaceship, and he winds up with that, that Apollo toy chest. I was really annoyed. We had to spray paint it silver. But, um, yeah, we could only fit, squeeze two puppets in there. And if, you had to, if I had to pick personally, the one shot that embarrasses me the most from the movie, it's when you see the stupid spaceship they're in and the top pops open. Because <laughs> we didn't have a slow motion lens or anything. It was just a wire going, <laughs> just sitting there. I was, I mean, it was one of those few. I think that was literally the last shot of the movie, I think, where I was just shaking my head thinking, who cares? <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, knew by, I knew by day one I was in trouble. With, that movie was going to be bad. I could, I could tell. Because it was the very first day... Um, we did all the house scenes, and it was the first time I threw a puppet on someone. Because when I saw the night before, they, they weren't operational. You couldn't do anything with them except throw them. I knew we were going to have trouble, and I'm thinking, maybe the actors, if they struggle with it when they're fighting them, we'll, we could pull something together, and I'll dub in some bad audio, some screaming. And it was the first take, I knew it was never going to look right. So um, I intentionally had the actors be way more serious with their delivery for most of the movie to, to make it... Just to push the film even further over the top to get away with it. Awesome. Well, okay. And yet, hey. <laughs> well, I'm glad nobody did get hurt on that for sure. <laughs> so what are you working on these days? Um, well, Rift Tracks picked up Blood Theater, and um, they actually have two more of my films coming out. Probably awesome! Year. So, um... I hate announcing stuff too early because usually I don't jinx anything. Sure. Um, Vice Academy films are finally coming to Blu-ray, which took a while. Something of that, the increased picture quality lends itself to to that sort of experience, so awesome. um, Yeah, I'm I'm impressed with when they remaster them. I mean, we shot on 35, so I mean, film is life. They used to say film is forever. It's forever until it it gets destroyed, but... um, it is a race against time. I know Blood Theater, one of the roles in negative. It's a good thing we transferred it because, I mean, um, it, it definitely was not holding up as well. But um, other than that, yeah, all my other films, they seem to be preserving well. The audio goes first, actually. But my earlier films are like 30 to 35 years old at this point. So it reaches a point. I mean, 
you're talking about magnetic stocks, like a, a cassette tape, practically just a thick version of it, like one inch. There's a, a degree of how many years you can preserve that, no matter how it's stored. So um, it's a good thing we have backups. But um, yeah, I'm glad this stuff's getting digitally mastered finally. Yeah, the two K stuff looks beautiful. And fortunately, you got started right before digital media became commonplace, so there wasn't too much of a lag between the film and digital stages. It's, it's not like something that sat around for 80 years before. Oh, hey, did we just invent a DVD? <laughs> no, they actually were all way out on video before. The DVD was like, um, they sat around for like a decade before I finally started putting them on DVD. Because they used to, DVD, they would just use, especially for smaller films, they would use the same video master from um, the VHS. So the picture quality was never that great. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, especially today, people are, really, are much pickier, so... Um, yeah, I get to go back with remastering. The film's actually widescreen the way it was originally shot. And, I mean, they held up pretty well, so I'm, I'm happy in that aspect. Yeah, I mean, even when people have a, a movie that's, you know, you tend to see it on TV a couple of times and you think that's the way it is, but to actually see it in a proper presentation, whether it's it's a, you know, major production or a smaller one, it always just makes it feel a little more special. But. And a couple of years ago, um, I got to screen Blood Theater and Visitants on 35 millimeter. I mean, not not my two best known films. I mean, obviously, I don't have a film print of Hobgoblins that would have pulled in a bigger audience. But it was just nice to see them on the big screen, regardless of how little they cost or how amateur they look. When they're on the big screen on film, they, they, I mean, in terms of looking like a real film, they really do. So it was, it was just nice. It was a nice evening. So you get to hang out with the fans there and, and enjoy the, the the experience of watching it with them. How do the fans of these movies differ from? "Quote unquote regular moviegoers," in your experience, um, it's hard to say because I mean, sadly, my claim to fame is I made one of the worst films of all time. So most people who are familiar with my work will show up because of Hobgoblins. So there's always this. I always I always cringe when it's Q and A time because like some of the questions are like, "So did Mary Warnoff just do whatever she she did? Is she, did you even direct her at all?" I get these questions like, "No, actually, I wrote the character for her," but. Um, I have to brace myself before the questions because they're usually backhanded on some level. That oh, people that's... no one's trying to be mean, but I mean, my early films in particular. I mean, they are an acquired taste, and, and that's fair. But to actually make the effort to go out to a show and sit through a two-hour movie and then get to the Q and A just to pick fun at somebody—I mean, don't you have anything better to do? Somebody uh, for that type of film, it's kind of a given. But I—I <laughs> <laughs> I, I, guess I guess I, I'm just. You know, I just can't think that if you wanted to, you know, actually go out and have a movie out for whatever, to just think of something intelligent to say, or at least something, you know, pertinent to the movie instead of just picking fun at it. I don't know. I mean, for example, when you agreed to come on this, I really sat down and thought, you know, you know, what can, I just want to get into your head and figure out what it's like to, to sit down and make these movies in earnest and, and, you know, do the best job you can and maybe, maybe I don't I, I guess it's just because I have so many people, friends who are, are also into the production business in various degrees, and I just I, I wouldn't want to see that that happen to them. That's... No, I, I, I'm so used to it by now. I mean, I, I'm very self-aware of what my films look like. Most filmmakers who have a career in bad films, they really have an inflated ego and think their films are great and people don't understand them. and. They don't. They really don't see what other people are seeing in their films. They're completely missing the point. But I, I've watched. I watched Hobgoblins before it was even finished, and I knew we were in trouble. So um, yeah, I know when people laugh. I felt I know exactly what they're laughing at. I was on set. I was embarrassed at the same time for the same reason. 
yeah, I, I don't, I don't sense ego from you. I don't sense pretentiousness. I hobgoblins or or pretty much the movies that I've seen are, they know what they are, for better or worse, and yet there's still an effort to hey, let's let's bring this home. Let's let's finish this up. And I mean, you could have just walked away from it, but you didn't. And that I think there's something to that. I know Blood Theater came really close to not getting finished because we had a different actress playing um, the female lead originally, and then she, we had like three days of photography left. She decided not to finish the movie, and I had to go back and reshoot the entire film, but I couldn't get everyone else back at the same time, so I had to do it in stages with body doubles for parts. And I mean, this colossal chore to reshoot that half that movie, I was like so angry over this whole thing. Of course, um, she was sure she was going to become famous, which, surprise, did not happen, but... Um, no, it was just it's an example of stuff you have to deal with, especially on low budget. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to start wrapping this up and let you go, but I want to thank you so much for doing this because this has really been the kind of thing I, I enjoy, and I, I, I've i really enjoyed the answer you've given here. So um, where could somebody follow you if they're going to be uh, trying to keep track of what you're doing from here on out? Do you have a, a internet presence or uh... – um, well, people can find me on Facebook. Um, there's an unauthorized fan page, which I had to contact the guy who runs it because I was very impressed with someone. It's ricksloan.com. I don't run it myself, the guy who does run it. I mean, it has so much information. I mean, he really did his homework. I mean, of just every actor I've worked with and which films I've used them repeatedly, um, trivia details. I mean, I mean I, I've made a handful of movies, but about half of them are hard to find. And, um, you know, it's always an honor when fans actually search out, like, Good Girls Don't. It's the lesser-known ones. Um, bigger, it, the ones I made with bigger budgets are usually the ones people aren't as familiar with. The cheap and dirty ones, everybody knows those. Well, I will put com and your Facebook stuff on my <laughs> show notes. And I will reach out to him before this goes out to say, hey, this episode's coming out. You may want to keep tabs on it and listen to it as well. <laughs> Um, but other than that, I want to thank you again so much for being here, and maybe we can have you back again sometime soon. Okay. Enjoy. Thank you. Oh, excellent. Thank, take good care. I would like to thank Rick Sloan for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. At the beginning of the episode, I had mentioned that there were some things you could do that would help the podcast a lot. They will not cost you anything and they will not take more than five minutes of your time. First of all, if you happen to listen to the audio version of the show, please subscribe using iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your platform of choice is. Hit the subscribe button, get the new episodes automatically. If you prefer the video version of the show on YouTube, go ahead and hit the subscribe button there as well. I believe there's also a notification feature, so if you want to know exactly when the new episode drops, which is usually every other Thursday, go ahead and hit that as well. Of course, I would prefer if you like me on Twitter as well as Facebook. Of course, you can get links to everything I just mentioned at my website, www.aaronbossig.com. Now, if you want to be a superhero, here's something you could do that would help me above and beyond even that. If you're active in, say, a web forum or some sort of Facebook group or something involving discussing our favorite fandoms, leave a mention of the show there. Give a link to somebody saying, hey, we like Star Trek. This guy talks about Star Trek. Or, hey, we like cosplay. This guy talks about cosplay. Spread the word to other fan groups who might be interested in the show. Now, please don't spam. If you don't honestly think they're going to like the show, please don't leave a link. But if you do think it's relevant, please go ahead and spread the word. And if you don't have a Facebook group 
or a web forum that you enjoy, just tell a friend. That is one of the best ways we can get the show growing, and that would help me a lot. Thank you so much, and I'll see you in two weeks.